I'm hot. I'm surrounded by a throng of happy, sweaty people from all walks of life. I just saw a sexy blueberry and a marching band playing Lady Gaga's Bad Romance. It can only be pride in Toronto. What once began as a protest against police for the bathhouse riots in the 80s has grown into one of the city's biggest draws. In pride, we see our greatest aspirations reflected, diversity, our strength, the city we wish to be. And this year held special significance. The Prime Minister marched, a first for Canada. Solemn respect was paid to the victims of the Orlando massacre, and the activist group Black Lives Matter were not only in attendance, they were honored guests. The group staged a sit-in before the parade ramped up and used the moment when the world was watching to draw attention to the injustice that so many in this city still face, in spite of any progress that's been made. Black Lives Matter showed us that we, collectively, are not the city we aspire to be. We want to be inclusive, to celebrate difference, to be a place where diversity truly is our strength. We should never give up trying to be that city. Sometimes, we just need someone bold to show us the way. This is Spacing Radio. We're back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, I talk to a guerrilla urbanist about a fast and dirty way to improve the public realm that has people in this city talking and sitting. The word kerfuffle is used at least once, so stay tuned for that. But first, Spacing has a very special announcement to make. We're going to talk to two trailblazers who have helped to shape their respective communities, and our publisher, Matt Blackett, is here to share the big news and introduce our first two guests. Matt? Thanks, Glenn. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm very excited to be able to announce uh, the 2016 uh, recipients to the Jane Jacobs Prize. Uh, this year, it's going to be Leslie Chudnovsky and Luke Anderson. And they are two unbelievably amazing people who have changed life for so many people in their, uh, I guess you call it their field of expertise. Yeah. And I think they're just uh, uh, excellent representatives of what the Jane Jacobs Prize is all about. And, and yeah, what, about the Jane Jacobs Prize, what's the criteria? So uh, it was originally, it was uh, started by a uh, uh, an organization called Ideas That Matter. Um, it, it came out of a conference about Jane Jacobs uh, at the end of the the. Uh, uh, late 90s in ni- 1997. Um, and uh, it was awarded uh, by this organization for a number of years up until 2010. Uh, and then I, I guess Rob Ford getting elected <laughs> changed things about the <laughs> way we think about Jane Jacobs. And uh, they didn't actually give that award out um, for 2011, 2012, and 2013. And it was uh, near the end of 2013 where Alan Broadbent, who, who was one of the uh, creators of the award and was kind of the keeper of the award. He came to Spacing, um, who we were the recipients of actually this award in 2010. Right. And they said to us, it's like, you, you exemplify so much about what Jane Jacobs does. You're a new generation of, of city leaders and urbanists, and we want you to 
um, become the stewards of the Jane Jacobs Prize. And so in 2014, we began to uh, uh, hand out the award. And this is the third time that we've uh, been able to hand out the award. And I have to say, it's like one of the best days of my year when I get to pick up the phone and call these recipients and tell them that, you're awesome. You're winning an award. We're having a ceremony about you. There's a big profile about you in the magazine. Now we can say there's got profile of them in the podcast. And on top of that, they're getting money for three years as, as the reward for the, for, for this amazing work that they're doing. And so what's their reaction? I guess good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all, it's always, it's always positive. Um, and, uh, I, I, I don't let on at first, this is what I'm going to be what I'm going to be telling them about. I asked them a little bit about, do they know about the Jane Jacobs prize? How much do they know about spacing magazine? You know, some, some of them have, they, they've all have a general idea of, of, of who we are, not always the Jane Jacobs prize. And so I think that's uh, exciting. And then when we, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to be callous and I don't think the, the recipients are callous in any kind of way, but when they hear that they're also getting some money that they can uh, out of this and they're going to get it for three years, um, and, and they could do whatever they want with it. It's 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 we have no restrictions on how they spend that money because it's it's theirs. And usually there are unsung heroes. These people that 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 win these awards. They're they're not the top leading city builders uh, that we all know and hear about in uh, in, in the news. Right. Um, these people are, are are very kind of grassroots on the ground. Um, and you know, they're if if you're an activist or you're an advocate for a real like city issue, um, chances are you're not getting paid to do that. And and uh, you're taking on a lot of uh, personal uh, uh, debt, if not in your time, but also financially. So this is one way of kind of helping alleviate uh, some of that stress. And so people have used that money to put a, a house, uh, a roof on their house, I should say. Um, some people have used it to go to conferences. And uh, um, one of our recipients has uh, is using it to, uh, to sponsor a Syrian family. And, wow. and, and like, yeah. like how unbelievable is that? I just, it, yeah. it gives me tingles um, thinking, thinking about that. And so I, this, this is why like, I'm so excited about giving out this word each year and, and, and uh, exposing these people, these recipients to a, a larger audience because they've done such amazing work. And so about these recipients, um, tell me a little bit about Leslie. She, she works with Support Our Youth. Uh, she's a mentor. Yeah, um, her 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 work is, you know, Le- Leslie's retiring. We felt it was it was a really good time, both I think for her to to receive this award and the movement that she represents, right. um, uh, supporting youth uh, that are that are dealing with a variety of of issues around sexuality and gender and 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 and, and we're. we're Obviously, at a uh, uh, we're in a different space than we were even like three or four years ago about this topic, and um, it, it, it felt appropriate and, and and timely to to give her this award, and 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 I think that she she's obviously really well de- uh, highly deserving of this award, um, but I also think that the timing is is excellent for it too. And Luke, Luke is busy. He's he's popping up all over cities in Canada. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he's he's almost gonna not be an unsung hero soon because I think everyone's going to be singing his praises. Uh, I hear him on the radio a lot now, uh, talking, uh, being an advocate and talking about these issues. Uh, the amazing stuff that Stopgap is doing is spreading across the country. It's starting to get to other places outside of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 it's a simple, simple idea that has such huge uh, positive ramifications for people with ex- accessibility issues. I know one previous winner of the Jane Jacobs Prize was 
so happy that Luke was receiving this award because in the time period of when he had received this award and now he, he's become wheelchair bound and, and, and there, he can't get into buildings. And so, uh, and, and, and where he works around the East side and he, he's so happy that Luke is doing this and is, is making sure that these buildings that he accesses are going to have stop gap ramps. So, so it's a, it's a, it's like a fraternity you're joining now. The, the Leslie and Luke, they're, 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 they're part of the Jane Jacobs prize crew. Um, and, and that means that, uh, uh, hopefully they're going to be able to start, uh, uh, spreading the word a little bit more and, and, and them getting a little bit more attention for the, obviously the amazing work that they're doing. All right, so let's first go meet Leslie Chudnowski. Uh I sat down with her just days before the Pride Parade. We talk about her work. I, I share some questions from her colleagues. And Matt, you want to say the thing? Sure. Stand by. Leslie, first of all, uh, congratulations on the award. Thank you so much. It's such a huge honor and a little bit overwhelming, I have to admit. Well, first of all, for our listeners, uh, maybe you can take us through the uh, the Soy Mentoring uh, Program, how it began and, and how your involvement began. Okay, well, the Soy Mentoring Program was envisioned about 18 years ago, and a group of people, an advisory committee, got together, were formed, and really created all the structure for the program, uh, all the um, information, the intake forms, all those kinds of structural things, and then I was hired to get the program up and running 16 years ago. And what inspired your, your involvement? Well, it was actually a beautiful combination of all the things that mean so much to me. Uh, connecting people, uh, I'm a lesbian mother, so believing in intergenerational relationships, knowing that there was a really a disconnect in the community. There wasn't an easy way for adults to connect with youth and vice versa in a really safe, um, intentional way. And so that's something that a mentorship program can uh, provide as compared to other services. Absolutely. A mentorship program uh, gives youth an opportunity to have someone on their side um, to talk to, to ask questions to. And for LGBT youth, often there isn't anybody. Maybe they have a friend. Maybe they happen to know somebody, but there isn't really a place where they can go and be themselves and just be curious and be um, accepted exactly for who they are and where no question is a wrong question and no way to be is a wrong way to be. And it seems to also particularly provide a great service to new Canadians. There are many youth who come to soy from countries all over the world. I mean, we know many countries it's illegal to be queer and trans. So many youth come to Canada hoping to find a welcoming place. And of course, it isn't always exactly as wonderful as one would imagine. So we hope soy provides that, that warmth and welcoming place. And what did you personally learn along the way uh, working in this program? I have learned so much. I have learned about... First of all, the courage of youth. I think to walk into an organization where you don't know anybody, you might be new to the country, new to the city, or just new to the community, and put your trust in people that they're going to offer you something that is a true need for you. And um, I think that takes a lot of courage to walk through the door and say, I'm a lesbian or trans or queer youth, or maybe I am, I don't even know, but 
I would really like to have someone to talk to about that. I think that takes a lot of courage and strength. And I think it also, I also learned about the generosity of the community. So many people have volunteered to be mentors and they say they want to do that because one of two reasons mostly people say that there just was nobody in their life to talk to when they were coming out or, um, and what a lonely and difficult time that was or people say they just happened to find somebody and what a huge difference that one person made in their life. I spoke to some of your colleagues. Uh, first of all, they speak very highly of you and your contribution. Uh, they actually had uh, a couple questions. Uh, one of them was, uh, you know, this kind of work, um, it's sometimes unusual for someone to, to stick at the same thing for 16 years. So uh, a question, you know, was why, why this? Why 16 years? I think I always say this was really a plum job for me. I, in life, I can't see anything more rewarding than helping people connect to each other uh, in a community that is welcoming of everybody. So I think Soy is a very diverse and dynamic community. So although the position may be the same position, Soy has grown and changed so much over the years. So I've uh, met so many colleagues that I've learned so much from. So nothing stands still at Soy. And the other question uh, was, uh, where do you see the future of Soy going? I think Soy has very, very strong roots. And I think as it's grown, um, we've noticed who is there, but also who's, who is not there. So I think it's always about reaching out to the people on the margins um, and making sure that soy is there for them too. So I see soy growing in that way. And the other thing I always say is I really hope in 10 years, you know, the world is more like soy. Um, so as the ripples out of people becoming more of who they are and feeling good about themselves and contributing to their communities, that uh, soy and our city reflect each other more. And this is, uh, all Pride Months are important, but this might uh, be a particularly important Pride Month for a lot of people. Uh, so what do you hope people remember and, and remember to celebrate uh, this Pride Month? I hope people remember to celebrate the importance of standing together and giving voice to people who maybe don't have voice or the opportunity to share their voice and seeing who has been at the center of um, the activism in Toronto of late, um, giving real tribute to Black Lives Matter and to noticing in Orlando who it was, whose lives were lost. It was people of color and not forgetting um, that this is the center of our movement and the intersections of oppression. And we need to stand together and support one another and move forward so that everybody has a place where they belong and that human rights are at the forefront. We all need to um, continue the struggle for human rights. Because there was some talk in certain circles that Pride has become too political, but uh, Pride was always a, a political movement. That, that seems to be what you're speaking to. Yes, I've always believed that Pride is deeply political, and um, there are so many moments that remind us of why that needs to be so. And sadly, this year, it was the tragedy in Orlando. Um, and if we look at 
human rights all over the world for LGBT people, we know that there's still a long, long way to go. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, congratulations again on the award, and thank you for your, your contribution. Thank you so much. Toronto, like many cities, has an accessibility problem. For people with disabilities, the elderly, injured, families with small children, many corners of the city are off-limits. And we all tend to agree that we need to address this problem, to take it seriously. But it sometimes feels like we're dragging it out or missing the point. Take the new 514 streetcar line on Cherry Street. The first new streetcar line in 16 years, it was supposed to be accessible. But we're still waiting on many of the low-floor Bombardier streetcars. Even once they arrive, there are only two accessible connections to the Bloor subway line and one to the university line due to the lack of accessible elevators and subway stations. That's why we need people like Luke Anderson, whose group Stopgap.ca is changing the way we look at our city and changing the conversation around accessibility. All right, so Luke, uh, Stopgap has gotten a lot of press all over Canada. You've even got some international notice. Uh, but uh, for the for the listeners who, who may not have heard uh, about Stopgap, uh, can you tell me a little story about uh, about the organization? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the opportunity to to share. It's it's an important message to share because we're all about raising awareness about barriers in our in our communities that prevent a lot of people from from accessing the spaces that that they desire so my my desire to raise awareness about this came from uh, encountering so many barriers uh, after my life changed um, in a split second I, I had a pretty bad crash on my mountain bike that resulted in a, in a spinal cord injury so yeah, and all of a sudden my life changed that day when when um, I was introduced to a world that's that's not well suited for for someone that uses a wheelchair. So I uh, I got a got a great job um, about four years after sustaining my my injury. I, I landed a great job at a an engineering firm here in Toronto called Blackwell, and I mean the guys that. Guys at Blackwell are fantastic. It's a it's an amazing firm, but the one thing about about the office is that it's in a building that has three steps to get in. So every time I needed to come and go from from the office building, I I would have to get one of my my coworkers to come down and and set up a, a folding ramp. So, so I could get in and, and same thing for leaving. So I dealt with that issue for almost eight years. So my frustration with that, that, that problem, as well as the many other stepped entryways that I had come across since having to use a chair made, made my frustration with, with, with this problem uh, boil over. I wanted people to start talking about this issue because I was noticing that other people loved using that folding ramp as well when it was when it was deployed. Delivery people bringing packages in, parents pushing strollers. So many people loved using that ramp that I wanted everybody to understand that 
a ramp or just barrier-free access really makes life easier for all of us. I wanted people to start thinking about really great ideas that could help solve some of these big issues that we all face. Now, around the same time when, when my frustration was boiling over, I was noticing a lot of brightly painted bicycles popping up around the city. And this is around 2011 when, um, when two OCAD employees had started a public art installation um, where they painted bicycles, really bright colors, and locked them up around the city. So their intent was to get a conversation started about public art and, and urban planning um, and, and cycling. And the, you know what, the, the project was, was so successful. Uh, the media wrote all kinds of stories about it. Um, tourists posed with the bikes and, and it just was so effective simply by painting a common object like, like a bicycle, a really bright color, and, and just positioning it so that people can see it, it really got a conversation started about, about the issues that, that uh, were intended to be um, talked about. It gave us an idea. So in the fall of 2011, we pulled together a bunch of volunteers and some building materials, and we built... 13 uh, really brightly painted ramps for, for business owners in the Junction neighborhood. And so similar with the artist's goals, we, we wanted to raise awareness about, about the issues that I, that I mentioned. So um, we wanted people to understand that we have a human right to equal access and that, that a barrier-free amenity really, really makes life easier for all of us. So we painted the ramps really bright colors and stenciled our, our logo on there, um, the stop, stopgap.ca uh, logo, where we could send people to learn more about what, what we were up to if they were interested in learning more. And, and you know what? It's the, the positive feedback that we got from that first project was, was immense. It was, it was profound. We, we really needed to take it to different parts of the city. Um, so we did. We moved, moved our project into Roncesvalles and uh, Kensington Market, um, the Danforth, the Annex, uh, all along College Street, uh, Dundas. And so all of the positive feedback that we were getting here in the city, all of the media attention and, and the news that was being written and, and covered on this project, it spread. It spread right across the country and, and it inspired other people from from different communities right across Canada to be in touch with us. And um, we, were, we were starting to get interest from different groups to, to, to take on a project, take on a ramp project. They, people wanted to bring what we were doing here in Toronto to their communities. So what that meant was that we, we needed to put our resources together, figure out everything that we had learned and, and write it all down so that we could share it with everybody so that they, can, uh, they, could, they could do uh, what we had done here in, in their communities. And, and you know what, it worked. So we've now got over 35 uh, communities participating in this project right across the country. And, and uh, I would say that we're 
probably close to 1,000 ramps now right across Canada. So it's, it's working. Our message, message is spreading, and we, we know that we still have a, a whole lot of work to do because for every step with ground-level access, there's probably, oh, I would say three, three-stepped entryways. And in, in, you know, in, in Toronto alone, we have more than 5,000 restaurants and bars. So if you do the math, that's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of venues that, that could benefit from, from, having a, from, from having a ramp or you know, uh, investing in, in a, a barrier-free renovation that, that could then in turn benefit all of us here in, here in the city alone. Um, and that's just restaurants and bars. Yeah, because the city itself, in some ways, does tend to drag its feet on accessibility issues. I'm thinking of less than half of the TTC subway stations uh, that are not accessible in, in many different ways. And, uh, and we have these, uh, the AODA requirements by 2025 that uh, I'm not sure if it, if it feels like we're going to meet those in time. Yeah, well, this, this project's become a really, really important project here in Ontario because... We do. We have the AODA, so Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, which has a goal of creating a fully barrier-free Ontario by 2025. And just over half of the TTC subway, subway stops aren't accessible. So that alone, I, I really don't see the, the other half of those, those stations becoming equipped uh, with, with elevators beyond 2025. So there's other details about the act that prevent that statement from being true in my mind. And, and so this project is, is, has become such an integral part of, of the conversation here in Ontario in order to get closer to, to, that, to that goal, which I think is a, a fantastic goal to have. But it, it's very ambitious and we need to get accessibility on everybody's radar. We need people to understand that services and um, our urban fabric needs to be built, designed and built with everyone in mind. So that no matter what our ability, we're able to, to navigate our city, navigate our province, navigate our world with maximum independence. Um, at some point, we're, we're all going to experience some level of disability, whether it's uh, due to injury or, or illness um, or old age. And, and we, again, we just need to make sure that, that the way that we design and build our, our infrastructure, our buildings, uh, our websites even, are built with everyone in mind. It seems to me uh, until uh, you know our, our official institutions get get serious about the funding of of that kind of thing and meeting these requirements, which as you said are ambitious but mean so much to people, uh, that um, the power of stopgap is is its simplicity. That it, it's something it takes so little. It takes a little bit of material. It takes a little bit of of volunteer and, and time and a, a coat of nice paint, and and then it makes such a difference to someone. Yeah. Well, we're we're addressing such a such a small issue the single step storefront uh, and it we consider it the low hanging fruit it is it's four pieces of wood and a bunch of bright colors 
but we hope that the ramps start a further conversation and start people thinking further about the other issues that are out there um, from a, an all-encompassing ideology. You know, these steps are representative, representative of, of larger issues that, that we face. Um, one of them being the language that we use surrounding people with disabilities. We, we need to work towards language and, and symbols that, that are empowering. Language that, that puts the person first and, and then the disability they may have. Um, imagery uh, and symbols that, that don't portray people with disabilities as immobile and, and helpless, but symbols and, and imagery that, that recognize someone for what they can do and, and not what they can't do. Because really, I believe that it's, it's not us as humans that have disabilities, but it's, it's the places that we live, work, and play in that, that are disabled. And so if I have a favorite place, maybe a pub, uh, you know, my local that uh, could benefit from the stopgap program, uh, uh, how, do, how do I help? How do I get engaged? Well, now that you've heard all about what the Stopgap Foundation is, is all about and, and more information about the current state of accessibility here, here in Toronto and, and beyond, um, you're now an ambassador. So the world really is counting on you to, to share your, your newfound knowledge and understanding. And when you do come across a barrier, uh, feel free to let the business owner know that that their step is a problem for, for a lot of people. And we would, we would welcome that business owner to be in touch with us to learn how they could benefit from, from having a ramp. Well, Luke, I want to thank you so much for the work you do and, and say uh, sincere congratulations. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for the opportunity. Dellen is a member of the guerrilla urbanist group SITTO. They spotted a problem, devised a simple solution, and spent the summer implementing it. They didn't wait for permission, they saw a need, and they acted. I sat down with Ev in St. James Park, where we were lucky enough to find a bench. So, Ev, first of all, if you can tell me a little bit about SITTO or what it is and uh, what you hope to accomplish and how, how it kind of came to be. Sure. Um, so Sitio started off with uh, a group of people on Twitter just commenting about the lack of seating in Toronto um, and coming up with ideas of how to make it better. And it slowly agglomerated around a hashtag, uh, hashtag Sitio. Um, from there, um, uh, they started organizing and bringing in other people involved, uh, myself included. Uh, eventually, we crowdfunded uh, amongst ourselves and some other people um, some money to buy about 20 IKEA uh, just cheap folding chairs. I think they ended up being like eight or ten bucks a piece or something like that. Um, 
And then we went out and put them around a bunch of squares around the city. Um, we did Nathan Phillips Square. Uh, we got a great response there around the Toronto sign. Um, it looked like people needed a place to sit, sort of they want to take their pictures, sometimes sitting, sometimes standing. Um, and then afterwards, maybe have a little bit of a, a moment to relax and just sort of look at the other people in the square themselves. Um, we went to TD Center or uh, TD Plaza. Uh, that was actually a great experience. We thought we were going to be kicked out right away, but uh, um, no one seemed to really care. Uh, we took a bunch of photos there as well. Um, Union Station actually was where we had the the sort of the biggest kerfuffle, I guess you could say. Uh, security guards seemed to know that we were going to be coming there. Uh, they apparently some of them had told us that they had been told that there was a sitio thing happening and to be on the lookout for it. Um, uh, we we had to have some words uh, uh, with the security guard. And they sort of let us know that they prefer us to be sort of off of officially unions pr uh, property. Um, got some really sort of interesting comments from there. Actually, uh, one of the security guards said that uh, they had had benches there before, uh, but they took them up because people kept sitting on them. <laughs> um, sort of makes you wonder what the purpose of them was. Um, uh, we finished off the day at uh, King and John, uh, a great space over there. There are actually some uh, uh, concrete benches along the sidewalk. But um, uh, they, they seem to be so obscure and, and out of the way, people don't really use them. The, the benches or the, the seats that we had set up really liven the place up and people started sitting down there, uh, had some great conversations with people sitting down there as well. Um, same thing with uh, Queen West area. Um, great uh, uh, great atmosphere for it, especially in that wide area there uh, at Soho, just sort of across the street from Black Bull. Uh, lots of people used those chairs and, um, uh, and, and showed that there was really a demand for it around the city. Uh, and then we finished off the day at uh, Mutual uh, Mutual Street uh, on Young Street. I can't exactly remember the name of the park, uh, but um, uh, uh, again, great response. I mean, it's a great place to sit, and uh, I really would love for there to be some permanent chairs, some nice chairs there. Uh, maybe the city can run them. So it may sound self-explanatory, but why why is a place to sit important? What what does it mean for people? Uh, sitting makes place, um, makes it a place. Uh, you have lots of examples around the city of, of these great squares, uh, great places to be at, but uh, you don't really want to hang around there because there is no place to sit. Um, uh, we're in St. James Park right now, and um, I mean, I think it's, it's the fact that we have a bench here available to us that, that we are really enjoying this place a lot. Uh, I'm looking around at all the other people around here, and they too are, are sitting down enjoying some people on their cell phone. Um, some people are just writing down. Uh, the having the seat part is, and, and the ability to reflect is what makes a place a place. Uh, there are lots of examples, though, of, of, of just barren squares, and they don't attract the people. They don't attract the they don't they aren't really a place until you have a place to sit yeah any which way we look in this park i can see clusters of people it's almost like a little impromptu communities yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, having benches like we're sitting on right now are, are great. Uh, you can have small sort of clusters of people, but if you have larger groups of people and you want to sort of bring in some chairs, uh, that's really difficult with a, a bench that's fixed in place. Uh, a recent addition actually to the park, uh, there are some uh, uh, green post, uh, uh, some green style uh, Muskoka chairs. Uh, they're, they're holdover from uh, the Pan Am Games. I think the BIA or, or someone from the city may have grabbed them and, and has actually set them down along in the park here and they are movable and and i've seen them just both down from my apartment and walking through the park i've seen people just dragging the chairs sort of they're chained together in groups of threes but dragging the chairs around through the park uh, and sort of sometimes making pods of six or nine other times they just want to be alone and and it's that movable aspect of things that really makes a place a place uh, i look at paris where they have 
thousands of green wrought iron chairs. Uh, they've sort of become the staple, uh, the staple Paris chair, and that's a great example of 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 having that ability to move them around and 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 making that place a place. And then when you don't want to, when you just want to be by yourself, you can walk away with them. And beyond placemaking, it there's a there's an accessibility factor to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, when you have uh, when you have that chair be able to be moved, you can bring it to somebody who who needs it. Uh, maybe they can't come to the chair; the chair can come to them. Uh, and again, sort of pointing out where we're sitting right now, there's a little bit of a grassy area here. It might be difficult for some people uh, to get over to here. Um, on the other end of on the other end of the spectrum, though, um, I mean, uh, having that chair, having that seat available to you, makes it. Um, uh, uh, gives a place for a rest if you need it. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of, uh, of advantages to people who, who need a chair as well. Seems like a, a lot of uh, important work is being done in, in you know urbanism groups like like Setio that are, are very simple interventions uh, but very scalable. Something that makes people stop and think and then maybe creates a conversation. Uh, is that what you'd like to happen with Setio that you'd maybe see more permanent uh, seating fixtures as, as momentum gain? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, both myself and many of the other people in the in the group have said have made comments like that. I mean, we'd like to see. I mean, I think we've proven it with with. I mean, eight ten dollar chairs. Uh, we can we can place them in the in a park, and we don't really care about them. Uh, if if a big corporation or the city were to buy them, I'm sure they would get a bulk discount. They would feel like about them even cheaper. Um, and then, all, who cares if you know a small percentage of them are, are stolen or damaged or whatever? I mean, it, it's it's such a cheap intervention, but it's one that makes such a big uh, gain for its price that uh, it, it's really worth it, I think. Uh, same thing with uh, large buildings. Uh, I mean, when if you have a, a property owner of a TD Plaza, for example, uh, uh, they can afford to, to, you know, who cares if there's a little bit of breakage? Well, Ev, thanks so much for sitting down and talking to me. Thank you very much. In this episode, we've spoken to people who didn't wait to start building the city we all need. They saw a problem, they found a solution, and they worked hard at it. They educated people and brought them on board. And there's no one fix. There are communities within communities, but they took action. That's what mentors do. They help us become what we know we should be. When we're a little bit lost, they step in and show us the way. And that's episode two. Thanks for joining us once again. As always, please get the word out about us, like, share, subscribe. We'll be back at it again next month. I produce this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who also composed our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. Technical support was provided by PixelPie Productions at pixelpi.ca. If you have questions, comments, ideas, tweet at us at spacingradio, all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street, West Toronto. And before we go, I want to let you know about the Outside the Box contest. Beginning at the end of this month, Street Art Toronto wants to send you on a scavenger hunt. Take a selfie with one of their beautifully decorated traffic signal boxes and share it on social media for a chance to win a gift card for the Spacing Store. For more info, see spacing.ca. Until next time, take a moment to thank a mentor, whoever that is for you. Cheers. Cheers.